Good morning, church. I am no hero. I am uh, just an old fat man from Atlanta. And uh, I work for Equipping Leaders International. That's how I serve the Lord. I served with Mark for several years in Florida. That's how we know each other. And he's gracious enough to invite me to come here and, and to bring the word today. And I am one of your supported missionaries uh, Equipping Leaders International is a group of old gray-haired men. I'm the youngest, and I'm 57, and we travel the world working predominantly in Africa and India, and uh, we train national leaders to bring the gospel. So in a strict sense, I'm not even a missionary. I, I, I don't do evangelism. We don't plant churches. We, we don't uh, pastor churches. We don't drill wells and we don't do orphans and we don't take care of widows. We just train the national leaders who do all of that ministry. And so I live in the western suburbs of Atlanta. All of us live in the U.S. and we travel uh, frequently to other places. So I'm the India director. I go five times a year to India. And the first question that everybody asks me when I see them is, is when are you going back? And so it's, after a while, it's kind of given me a complex because they're always asking when I'm leaving. So the answer is January. I go back in January and the year starts over. You can open in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1 is where we are this week. This is an historic week. Brett mentioned it earlier in the service that today is Reformation Sunday. It's the last Sunday in October for years. It's the Sunday in which people have celebrated the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And this is historic this year because 500 years ago, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, the little German monk, nailed the 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and sparking a revolution in the church. There were already, for 200 years, had been little pockets of reformation, and the church would put them down. And finally, a spark, a fire was lit that wouldn't go out, and it roared through Europe. And, uh, and so we're Protestants as a result of the Protestant Reformation. But, you know, that's just identity politics. The real question is, what was the Reformation about? Well, the problem was there was a lot wrong with the doctrine and practice of the church. Occasionally, the church needs to go through Reformation, and very much so, the Church of Rome needed to go through Reformation in the 1500s. And so, the Reformers had three main issues that they were concerned about. Scripture, faith, and grace. And today, when we talk about it, we commonly call them solas. Maybe you've heard that. It's a little geeky to say it that way. But, for example, that, it's a Latin phrase. So people say in, in, in the PCA world, in the Reformed circles, we say sola scriptura. It makes us sound really bright, even though we're not. Sola, say it with me, sola scriptura. If you say that, say it, sola scriptura. All right, now see, that's your brilliant moment of the day. You can go home knowing you've been smart and you can tell people you spoke in Latin in church today. So what that means is only scripture or scripture alone. And what it, what it means in, in light of the church and the word is that scripture has authority over tradition. 
At the time of the Reformation, tradition had come to mean as much as the Scripture. And what the Reformers said is that Scripture alone is the only infallible source of truth and practice. So the next sola was sola fide, which means faith alone. So the church had often said salvation is by faith and works. And the Reformers came along and said, no, the Bible teaches that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone, faith alone. The third one was sola gratia, which means grace alone. And so that means grace over merit, that we can't earn our salvation, it has to be given to us. Now, are you following here? So that's three of the solas, but there's actually five, because over the last hundred years, two more have been added. One is solo Christo, which is what we're going to talk about today, which is Christ alone. In other words, Jesus is the only mediator, not the priest, not the pastor, not Mary, but Jesus. And then the fifth one is soli deo gloria, which means God's glory alone. In other words, instead of the veneration of the saints, we want to seek the glory of God. But as all good things are, we, the church continually adds to these things. So there's actually two more of these that some Anglicans have suggested we add to them, and that's sola ecclesia which means the church alone. And the idea is, is that in the rugged individualism of the West, we need to be reminded that God's salvation comes through his people, through the community of the saints. And then the seventh one is sola caritas, which means love alone. In other words, the fruit of the gospel is not knowledge. That's bad news for Presbyterians. The fruit of the gospel is love. So all seven of these things are in our text today. So let's read together from Romans chapter 1 in verse 1. Hear the word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God and power according to the Spirit of holiness by, the resurrection, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now all seven of the solas were in there. Did you see them? Uh, in verse 2, it talks about Scripture. In verse 5, we find faith and grace and God's glory. That's concerning the glory of His name. In verse 7, you see God's church when it talks about the saints. We're the saints, the holy ones set apart. And in verse 7, you'll also find the love of God. And then overarching the whole thing, the whole thing is about Jesus, and which is who we're going to talk about today because there are three main ways that you can really screw up the gospel, and they all have to do with Christ. You can either be wrong about the nature and person of Christ, or you can misunderstand his atonement and how that works. Or 
you can further misunderstand the power of the Christ, the power of the gospel for holy living. How do you respond to the gospel? So we're going to look at all three things this morning. Those are our three points. The first one is, who is Jesus? Now, have you ever met somebody in the church, anyone in the church who says something like this? You know, I'm not really into doctrine. I just want to go to church somewhere where I can feel the presence of Jesus. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Well, I've heard it uh, quite a few folks over the years, and so my response to them is always the same. I always ask a question. I say, well, who is Jesus? And, of course, the answer to that question is doctrine. So I just can't resist. But the question is, who is Jesus? Is he God? Is he man? Is he just one way of many ways to, to God? Is he both God and man? Well, Paul here in this text says that Jesus is both man and God, that he is the son of David and the son of God. Now, you may not know this, but in the early church, people had problems with Christ's humanity. They denied that he was a man. There were many people that believed in that time in the world, according to Greek philosophy, that physical life, the body, is inherently sinful, and that only the spiritual realm is holy. So that means if the body is sinful, there's no way that God would ever come and take on flesh and become a man. It just wouldn't happen. So the Bible, the New Testament, the apostles, they go way out of their way to convince readers that Jesus is truly a man. He's not an avatar. It's not the appearance of God. He's a man. And, and you can find this all over your New Testament. For example, there's two genealogies in the gospel. The genealogy in Matthew makes the point that Jesus is the son of David. It, it gives his royal lineage back through his mom, Mary. On the other hand, Luke... His genealogy makes the point that Jesus is the son of Adam, that he's a man just like all men. And, and that gives us his tribal and his legal lineage back through his dad, Joseph. And, and then one time Jesus was walking on the water. Maybe you remember that story. When he walked on water in the middle of the night across the Sea of Galilee, and he's coming to a group of professional fishermen and they've never seen this before, of course. And so if you remember the story, the disciples thought Jesus was a ghost. After all, no human being can walk on water. But Jesus makes it plain to them very quickly that it's him. He's a man walking on the water. He's not a ghost. And after the resurrection, of course, they think the same thing. When Jesus just appears in the upper room, they think he's a ghost. And he says, look at my hands and my feet they can see the scars he says touch me i have flesh and blood i'm not a ghost and then the clincher he that's what every good southerner does he eats a piece of fish because you see this error was so prevalent that the apostle john even begins his letter first john with this affirmation he says the one whom we have touched and have seen that this is the one that we declare to you. And then in chapter 4 of that same letter, he says that if you deny the humanity of Jesus, you are antichrist. Now that's pretty serious. If you deny the humanity of Jesus, 
you're antichrist because Jesus was a man. He can't be a mediator for us unless he's one of us. But now we get to the modern world, and it's the opposite problem. You know, we live in a scientific age, the age of reason. There's no doubt about the humanity of Christ, but modern skeptics, well, they doubt his deity, including many of the cults. Maybe some of you struggle with that. So I have a question for you this morning. Here's my question. What is it that zebras have that no other animal has? What is it that zebras have that no other animal has? Do you know? Anybody want to take a shot at it? Yeah, it's not stripes. Tigers have stripes. The baby zebras, that is exactly correct. Zebras have baby zebras. No other animal has baby zebras. So what is it that God has that no other being in the universe has? A son. Uh, the Son of God, the, the Bible calls him the only begotten of the Father. The creed says, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, he is the Son of God. You see, all of us, men and women alike, we're all adopted sons. We're firstborn sons. We inherit the kingdom because our older brother, the only begotten Son of God, has made a way for us to come into his family, into his kingdom. He's God the Son. We're, we're adopted. The only way you can get into the kingdom is to be adopted. This is also plainly taught in the Bible. Colossians 1, for example, is written to show the, the supremacy of Christ over all things. Paul calls Jesus there the image of of the invisible son the image of the invisible god so in other words if the father were to look at a mirror what would he see who would he see well he wouldn't see himself he would see the son looking back at him Sa same thing in hebrews chapter one hebrews the book of hebrews is written to show the supremacy of of christ as god's son over moses and the old covenant and so here's what hebrews one says it says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You see, the New Testament is just as clear about the deity of Christ as it is about the humanity of Christ. But you know, I remember 40 years ago being a young Christian, having just come to faith and, and having some doubts about all this. Well, I can tell you, we don't have time today to go through all the New Testament for me to show you all the places that teach the deity of Christ. But I will say, just read the book of John. It is so clear in the book of John. John begins with this affirmation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. It's right there in the very first two verses. And then the book of John proceeds chapter by chapter to reveal the glory and the deity of Jesus. Now, modern skeptics will say that Jesus never claimed deity. But that's not what his Jewish audience thought. If you read the Gospels, you see that they tried to stone him on multiple occasions because they said he was claiming to be equal with the Father. And, and you know, when people were wrong, Jesus wasn't slow to correct them. And he never corrected anybody that claimed, that said he was claiming to be equal to the Father. In fact, he would drive home the point even more. 
Now, to drive this point home for you and for others, I, I usually list out four things, a four-part proof to show that Jesus is God. The first is that Jesus has the names of God. He's called Lord, right here in this passage. He is the great I Am. He's Jehovah. He's Yahweh. He calls himself that in John 8, and he calls himself that when he walked on the water. At the beginning of the Gospels, John the Baptist says that he's preparing the way for the Lord. And the Gospel quotes from Isaiah 40. And if you go look at that passage in Isaiah 40, it's talking about Jehovah. So you see, Jesus is Jehovah. In Revelation 1, Jesus is called the first and the last and the living one. Those are both names of God alone. So Jesus bears the names of God, and those are just a few of them. Secondly, not only does he bear the names of God, Jesus does the works of God. He heals the sick. He drives out demons. He raises the dead. He controls the wind and the waves so much that it makes the professional fishermen who are used to the winds and the waves, it makes them fearful, not of the waves, but of Jesus himself. He walks on water. He forgives sin, and the great miracle that shows that he is the Messiah, he's the Lord, he feeds the 5,000 and the 4,000, manna from heaven. He's the creator and the sustainer of life. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's why we pray for the sick. The only way the medicine ever works, it doesn't have any magic. The only reason medicine works is because Jesus makes it work. So, not only does he bear the names of God, he does the works of God. Thirdly, Jesus has the attributes, the characters, the characteristics of God. He's forever. He's eternal. He's immortal. He, he knows people's thoughts when they think them. He, he's sinless. He's holy. He's perfect in righteousness. He, he is the image of the invisible God and the exact representation of God's nature. And then fourthly, not only does he have the names and the works and the attributes of God, Jesus receives the worship of God. You know, for anyone to receive worship in God's place would be idolatry and blasphemy. At the end of the book of Revelation, when a mighty angel appears, John, the apostle, falls down to worship the angel, and the angel says, no, 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 don't worship me. Worship God alone. So Jesus received that worship because to worship anyone but God would be idolatry and blasphemy. But Jesus never corrects anyone for bowing down and worshiping him. After the resurrection, when Thomas, when his doubts are relieved because he touches the scars and puts his hand in the, in the side of Christ, he bows down before him and he says, my Lord and, and my God. And it happens throughout the book of Revelation. You see, if he bears the name of God, does the works of God, has the attributes of God and receives God's worship, then he must be God, right? You know, we have a saying in the South, if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it sounds like a duck, and it tastes like a duck, it must be a duck. Jesus is God. He bears the names of God. He does the works of God. He has the attributes of God, and he receives God's worship. 
So who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of David and the Son of God. He's the Son of God and God the Son. He is the God-man. He's the one mediator between humanity and deity. So the second question that arises then is, so what? What what did Jesus do? What, What did Jesus do? Well, Paul says in our text this morning that he rose from the dead. Now, I don't know anybody else that rose from the dead, not under their own power. Jesus rose from the dead. You read some of these books that come out to try to prove heaven exists because somebody came back from the dead. Well, I know heaven exists because Jesus came back from the dead. That's really significant, and the resurrection of Jesus is enough is enough significance to spend some serious time thinking about the gospel the good news of God you know all over the world in every generation every culture asks the same question how can I be righteous how can I be acceptable before a holy God how can I have hope that I will be acceptable on the day of acceptance how can I be moral and good. It's the same everywhere in every tribe and every culture. Everyone's asking that question. And then the answer to that question is found in a culture's religion. And there are many religions, the religions of men, I call them. You know, secular progressives in our culture answer the question through politics and, and the government. To be moral for a progressive is to have the right political views. And so if you have the wrong ones, if for some reason you're a bigot denying uh, homosexual marriage or gender change or whatever it is this week, if, if you're a bigot in some fashion, then you are immoral, intolerant, and unacceptable. You know why the left is so devastated and in turmoil over Donald Trump? is because they don't want Donald Trump to be their pastor. Because for the progressive, the president is meant to represent all that is right and good and moral with the world. So they don't want Donald Trump to be their pastor. And quite frankly, I don't want Donald Trump to be my pastor. Now on the right, conservatives, on the other hand, measure righteousness through religious and family values, measuring people by the Ten Commandments, or by abortion, or sexuality, or divorce, or homeschooling, or, or Christian schooling, or, or some other measurement in which we regard whether people are righteous or not. But you see, both sides have the same problem. When is it good enough? When is it enough for the day of acceptance, for the day of judgment? For Islam, it's the five pillars. For Judaism, it's the law of Moses. For Buddhism, it's striving after the true self that's hidden somewhere inside. For Hinduism, it's a matter of pleasing Shiva, the destroyer. All religions are the same. They have the same kind of requirements. What do I do to make myself acceptable to a holy God? And along in all that mess comes the gospel. The good news that the righteousness that God requires is the righteousness that God provides. That's good news. It's so good. 
You see, it's not about what I do, it's about what Jesus has done. It's not me who has to do something righteous, it's Jesus who does what is righteous, and then I receive his righteousness by faith. All those songs that we sang this morning make this point again and again. Very simply, the gospel is this. Jesus lived the perfect, sinless, and righteous life in my place and yours. And then Jesus died on a cross for our sins, and he rose from the dead for our justification, declaring us righteous even though we're still sinful. Now that is amazing. So I wanted us to jump over to Romans 3 and just read a few verses there. Beginning in verse 21, Romans 3. Verse 21 says, But now the righteousness of God has been revealed or manifested apart from the law. You see, it's not, not about the law of morality that I've kept. It's about the righteousness that God reveals. Verse 22 the righteousness of God revealed through the faith of Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received through by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. And now there's about five sermons in those five verses. <coughs> there's a ton of stuff there. All the solas are there again. So we only have time to point out a couple highlights. What this says very simply is, is that we're all sinners and we got a problem. That no matter how hard we try, whether it's through politics or family values or right education or religion or the five pillars or the true self, none of it's good enough because we're not good enough. We can't do it. We're not righteous enough, and on an honest day, everybody knows it about themselves because nobody even keeps their own judgments. Really, that's the standard. It's not the Ten Commandments or the Bible. The standard is, do you keep your own judgments? Do you follow your own rules? Do you keep your own standards? Or are you a hypocrite? You see, hypocrisy may be our greatest fault. I don't know anybody that keeps their own judgments. And, and, and what we find in India is that people think because they're religious, they're good enough. And there I use a cricket illustration, but here I'll talk about baseball because you don't know what cricket is. Uh, baseball, runner hit, uh, the, ba the batter hits the ball and he runs the first. If he's 30 feet from the base, when the ball gets there, is he out or safe? What about if he's one stride from the base? What about if it's boom, boom, and the ball gets there first? See, it doesn't matter how good you are, it doesn't matter how close you get, unless you're there, you're out. And that's the way it is with righteousness. So what God has done in his grace, this says, is that he has provided a substitute, and that substitute is himself. The eternal word, 
the second person of the Trinity, comes as the Lord Jesus and becomes a righteous man, a righteous substitute. And he does that by being a propitiation for our sins. Now that's one of those $20 words that nobody knows what it means. Propitiation means to appease God's wrath. Okay? It teaches that God is angry with the wicked and that the wicked need, that God needs appeasing. In Hinduism, in India, you appease Shiva's wrath. He's the destroyer. Instead of a redeemer, Hinduism has a destroyer. So you worship Shiva to keep him from being angry at you so that he'll be angry against your neighbor instead. It's a competition of righteousness so that Shiva will destroy somebody else. So what this says here is that the wrath and judgment that I deserve is put on Christ and I am propitiated by his blood. Now that sounds rather barbaric to modern ears, doesn't it? It's like watching Game of Thrones or something, but it's in your Bible. So is it barbaric or not? Is it old-fashioned? The question is, is it love that brings our forgiveness or is it justice and wrath? That's a question I ask the pastors all the time in India. Is it love or justice? Which is it? Is it barbaric and old-fashioned and out of date? Or is it loving and eternal? So, let me give you an illustration. Now, suppose Mark Brechet was to be in a car wreck on the way out of the parking lot today and and somebody smashed into his beautiful honda accord that that would that would be a horrible thing if it was my ford taurus it'd be reason to celebrate because then we could replace it but mark has a newer car and it's a honda so we don't want that to be in a wreck so he's minding his own business and somebody hits him hard right in the front wheel the car is a mess and it's undrivable. And of course, it's not a church member who does it, but it's one of those nasty people out there who don't have insurance. Now, what do you think Mark would do? Uh, assuming he's okay. He's okay. But what would he do? Would he be mad? Would he jump out of the car and would he yell? Look what you've done. You've messed up my car. You're going to have to pay for it. I sure hope you have insurance. Would he... Would he be so mad that he'd grab the guy by the collar and shake him? Yelling, you've got to pay. What would you do? Would you be mad? Or would Mark forgive, do you think? What do you think he'd do? Would he be angry or would he forgive? Well, suppose the man begs for forgiveness. Sir! Oh, sir, I have no insurance, but I also have no money. I, I didn't mean it. I'm so sorry. Would you please forgive me? You think at that point Mark would forgive him? He's your pastor. Would he forgive him? Or would he be angry? What do you think? Well, here's what I want you to see. Regardless of whether Mark pays or the perpetrator pays, Somebody has to pay for the car or it's a loss. Somebody has to pay. And if the man pays himself, well, all is good. But the problem is he can't pay and he has no insurance. He's just like a sinner before a holy God. 
And if Mark forgives, then who has to pay for the wreck? Well, then Mark has to pay, right? The one who forgives is the one who pays. That's the way the gospel works, you see. Forgiveness is never free. Whether it's God who forgives you or Mark who forgives the man who runs into him. Or you who forgive a neighbor their slight. To forgive requires the one who forgives to pay for the crime. And, and that's what happens in the gospel. Love and justice kiss at the cross. Because Jesus pays what we could never pay. Jesus takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. How incredible is that? He forgives the debt and then he fixes everything. He makes us new. Refurbished, we would say, in the modern world. And he pays for everything by living a perfect and a righteous life and then dying a sinner's death and then rising again from the dead. Now, how good is that? You see, it's love him made, made him do it, and it's justice that makes it work. It's both. So then, that's what Jesus did. Now, what does he do now? Well, the gospel gives you a choice. You can either propitiate yourself in for, forever misery, because sins against an infinite God require an infinite payment, or you can receive the eternal propitiation of the infinite Christ by faith, putting all your hope and trust in him. Beloved, that's the choice that everyone has. Follow the religions of men, a progressive or a conservative or Islam or whatever, and propitiate yourself forever or hear and believe the good news and receive Christ's eternal propitiation on your behalf. That's the option. Everybody has it. Those are the only two choices. And, and this isn't just a relationship with an idea about a person or some event in the past, but it's a relationship with an older brother who always looks out for his younger brothers, now and forever. Hebrews 7 says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for him. Now, intercession is another one of those $20 words. It was, it's in your order of service, and it means to stand in somebody else's place. We, we usually use the word intercession in the church for prayer. That's what Mark did this morning. He did our prayer of confession and the prayer of intercession. Because prayer is a means of interceding, standing in someone else's place before God. But I don't want you to think of Jesus, as his eternal intercession is prayer. That's not what it is. He's not down on his knees before the throne of God, forever mumbling prayers on our behalf. No, his, his finished work is continual intercession. He always stands in our place. Therefore, we're able to go to God with boldness, and we are invited into his presence now and forever. Now, how do we know that's true and for certain? Well, it's because of the resurrection. 
That's the proof that any of Christianity is true. It's also the means by which we have the power to, be, to obey. You see, the third part of this lesson is how we respond to God's provision of salvation and righteousness. And Paul says in Romans 1.5 that the, gospel, the goal of the gospel is to bring about obedience that comes by faith in Christ. That's what the whole book of Romans is about, is how the gospel brings about the obedience of faith. Because the most common error in the, in the Roman church and the most common error in the modern evangelical church is to imply that obedience comes from law and good morals and self-discipline. It doesn't. It doesn't work. This is called moralism, and it focuses on what I do. And it's not gospel because Paul says in Romans 7, Romans 8, that the law has no power over sin. It's the resurrection that gives us power. We are united, beloved. We are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. When Christ died, I died. When Christ rose, I rose. So Paul says that sin no longer has dominion over us because we are dead to sin at the cross and alive to God at the resurrection. We sang that truth as well this morning. In the old hymn, it says he breaks the power of of canceled sin this is the power of the gospel you see god indwells each of us through his spirit and what the spirit does is like a spotlight shines the light on the past and continual intercession of jesus before god's throne so when we sin as believers it's not because we've forgotten the law or the rules no we don't ever forget the rules we know what they are we sin anyway you don't have to remind people of the rules. No, we sin as believers because we've forgotten grace and the gospel, that the power of sin has been canceled. You see, obedience comes by faith in Christ. It, it's a growing faith. That, that's why Bible reading and study and prayer are so important and, and even vital, not because we want you to be more religion. It's religious, it's because the Bible saturates us with the gospel. They have to become your life. The only power we have to obey or have any purpose or joy in life is the power of Christ. You know, it's like a cell phone. Everybody's got one, but they don't stay charged for very long, do they? You have to, everybody I notice is always carrying around their little cord or you have to know where one is. You know, the true meaning of hospitality these days is to have a common cord that you provide for people when they visit your house because everybody needs to plug in. Have you noticed that? It's not because the electronics have suddenly failed to work or because they've burned up. It's because there's no charge in the battery. Well, you see, Jesus is the power and the cord is the message of the gospel. It's the good news of redemption in Christ alone. And if you don't stay plugged into the gospel, then you'll run out of juice on your own. And you'll have no power to obey. Now that's amazing good news that it's in Christ alone because it means that my faith in Christ is not wrapped up in the past, not in my past, not in his past, but it's in the present. His atonement continually working on my behalf every day, all the time. 
And that's true even if I'm not clever, even if I can't remember the five solas, even if I have trouble putting down that fifth or sixth beer, even if I'm struggling to love my wife, even if I'm feeling enslaved to hurt and bitterness, even doubting God's good in my life, even when I am faithless, he is still faithful because he cannot deny himself. And that is good news. But you see, there is bad news, beloved. If you hear all this and you think Christianity is weird and barbaric, that you're really not that sinful, that you don't really need someone dying for you in your place and you're doing pretty good on your own, well, if you believe that, then the truth is, is God may leave you on that path and he'll give you what you want. Self-propitiation, no forgiveness, fix it all yourself. And that's bad because you're not up to the task. If we are honest with yourself, you know that's the pathway to misery and you know that you don't even keep your own standards. You don't even keep your own judgments. And further bad news is that if you simply dabble in Christianity, attending church some, dropping a 20 in the plate every now and then when it passes by, and then, and then feeling okay about things, you, you may be lost and you, you may not even know it. And if you are saved, you'll experience no power over sin. And that in itself is misery, falling into the same sinful habits again and again. But you see, there is good news, beloved. It's an incredible good news. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. Jesus died on a cross for your sins, all, all the sins, all the ways in which you fail to love God, and to love your neighbor as yourself, even the sin of dabbling and messing around with the faith and being unserious. And, and, he, and he rose from the dead to give you eternal life, a, a life that is united to his life, united to his power, united to his glory. It's a life that's full of faith. It's dead to sin, and, and it's alive to God. So I invite you this morning to put your trust and hope in Jesus today. Some of you for the first time. Most of you for the thousandth time, because you need to be plugged in. Trusting in him as your savior, and as your Lord, and as your brother. Because you see, the truth is, Christianity is really weird, and it's terribly barbaric. That's true. But that's because we're weird, and we're barbaric. We'll run over anybody to get what we want. You see, reasonable religion doesn't save us because we're not reasonable people. But God's grace is more than reasonable as Jesus becomes our substitute. Every human experience you've ever faced, Jesus has already been there. You've suffered pain, he's felt it. You've been humiliated, it, it was his whole life. You've been forsaken, none more than him. Your grief is his grief. Your sorrow is his sorrow. Your pain is his pain. Your rejection, his rejection. Your hurts, his hurts. He has been tempted in every way that you have, yet without sin. Therefore, you see, when you put your faith in him, his resurrection is your resurrection. His joy becomes your joy. His power becomes your power. 
His faithfulness, your faithfulness, His glory, your glory. That's why we're celebrating the Reformation. You know, every Sunday's Resurrection Sunday, and the truth is, every Sunday's Reformation Sunday. Because that's why we believe in solo Christo, in Christ alone. Because there's no other hope and there's no better place to be than under his rule as Lord and in his care as big brother. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your grace. We honor you for your love. We're amazed at the goodness of your love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Hardly ever will anybody die for a good man, but you show your love for us that while we were still sinful, Christ died for us. That's amazing love. So on this Reformation Sunday, Lord, would you drive home the gospel to us more deeply than ever before, some for the first time? Lord, would you open hearts to believe with new grace this morning, showing the way of truth, for the incredible Savior that we have, the big brother who watches out for us all the time, who's done what we can't do to propitiate our sin. And then, Lord, would you give us the hope and the trust to plug in, to follow after Jesus, that we might remain charged and have power over that canceled sin. And as you do it, Lord, we'll give you the glory. We know it's all of grace and no reason to boast. We boast in the name of Jesus. And that's our prayer in his name. Amen? Amen. Amen. We come to the table of grace this morning. I invite the elders to come forward. We're at the table of grace. This is the real response to the gospel. The Father invites us into his family, into his house, to feast at his table. It's the true definition of hospitality. Even though we're sinners, he invites us to come and to put our hope in him and to respond to the good news by feasting in his presence at his table. So I invite you this morning to feast with us, to eat just a little taste of the bread and a little drink of the cup as we, in a small way, reveal the glory of the feast of the Lamb that is to come when we will eat all together with the saints from before and the saints in the future who are in the presence of the Father forevermore, feasting and living in his house. Jesus says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. 